you're listening to This Osteopathic Life. This is Dr. Amelia Beakey. I'm honored to share with you conversations for the health of all things. In these special episodes, I am joined by guests on the show to explore how the osteopathic concept presents in their lives and learn about their personal and professional stories. Ranging from osteopathic physicians to those familiar with osteopathic treatment to those associated with osteopathic medicine in a variety of settings, these conversations provide new perspective on lighting the way for the path to best health. Please note that while I am a physician and may interview other physicians, this podcast is intended to share general information and encourage discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked materials is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. Welcome back to This Osteopathic Life. This is Dr. Amelia Beakey, and I'm here with an episode of Conversations for the Health of All Things. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Cheruba Rabakar. She is an OBGYN in Berkeley, California, who specializes in helping women with fibroids live a life free of bleeding and pain. Thank you so much for joining me here on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. I'd love to hear about your story. Can you tell us how you got into medicine? Yeah. So, um, you know, I grew up in a family of physicians. My dad was a psychiatrist, my aunt is an internist, and just a lot of physicians. And, um, you know, I grew up in India, actually, for the first 12 years of my life. And it was a different time back then in the late 80s and early 90s, where um, being a doctor or an engineer was sort of the thing that most people aspired to. And um, having been constantly influenced by my dad and being in the medical space, um, I always had that in my mind. And um, as I as I grew up, um, I just loved that it was a lifelong, it was a professional lifelong learning um, challenges and um, really getting to see various faces of humanity. And um, so I, I thought it would, it would be a great um, career. And uh, so I Pursued it wholeheartedly and haven't looked back. I love it. And how do you see that lineage and that family connection through your practice? Yeah, so interestingly, there aren't really any OBGYNs in my in my family. Uh, my dad is a psychiatrist, internist, um, anesthesiologist, and pathologist. Not really OBGYN, and I never really even thought about OBGYN until I went to medical school. Um, but I guess one of the key things that I picked up from my dad really was um, treating people with kindness. Um, and that is something I, uh, as I care for women in various aspects of their lives, um, in difficult situations, um, that is something I really uh, aim to keep at the forefront of my practice um, above and beyond all the medical expertise that I offer. Mm-hmm. I love that. And in the surgical specialty, we also know the deep connections between mind and body and spirit. And so how powerful to have that influence of the psychiatric experience growing up, having that background and to take that with you. You can support the women for whom you care in that perspective too. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I, I love psychiatry and I really uh, enjoyed my rotations in medical school and I really considered it in fact, um, but I really had to work with my hands. Um, mm-hmm. So that's how I ended up in a surgical specialty. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the mind is so powerful. Um, different diseases manifest themselves um, physically, or different um, 
mind conditions, I guess, uh, of, of the mind and spirit manifest physically. Mm-hmm. So I see, I see quite a bit of that um, in pregnant patients as well as just um, in my everyday practice. So it's really fascinating. Yeah. And so you mentioned wanting to work with your hands and that drew you toward the surgical specialties. Why OBGYN? How did you end up in that space? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, when I went to medical school, I said uh, that was one of the specialties I would never do. I had zero mm-hmm. interest in OBGYN. Um, I was a neuroscience major, so I thought I would become a neurologist or a psychiatrist, maybe even a neurosurgeon, um, something along the neuro aspect. And then I did my uh, rotation in the middle of my third year uh, of medical school, and I just fell in love with OBGYN. I felt like it it called me. Um, and... I learned so much about the field that I, I, I didn't really know about. Um, I guess I didn't really know what OBGYN was all about. Um, I knew it was something to do with babies, but there's so much more to the specialty. The breadth of the specialty is 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 deep. And so um, I love that every day was different. Um, there was uh, the obstetric part, so babies. There was the surgical part. There was the office part. I felt like I had to know some of internal medicine, a little bit of dermatology, a little bit of endocrinology. So it was just an all-encompassing field. And that was super exciting to me. And the fact that no two days were the same. And so Mm. after I did my rotation, you know, a lot of people tried to talk me out of it. They said, really, you want to do OBGYN? Super, super hard. You know, a lot of call, a lot of nights away from home. And um as I went through the next six months doing my other rotations, um, nothing ever quite compared to my OBGYN rotation. And I always found myself comparing everything to this rotation. And I said, well, you know, I got to do it. You know, I love mm-hmm. it. It, it. It's called me and I'll figure out the rest later. <laughs> so yes, absolutely. And did that prove to be true as you went through postgraduate training and into practice? Yeah, you know, it's a tough specialty. I do have to operate at all times of day and night. Um, You know, I don't get seven, eight hours of sleep all the time necessarily. But for me, medicine is such a long journey. It's such a commitment and an investment that you have to just do what you love. And you will kind of figure out the path as you go along. And that's been true for me. You know, in my first few years out of practice, I was a full scope OBGYN. So I did call, you know, every fifth night, every fifth weekend. Um, I had two little kids at that time. So mm-hmm. there were some sacrifices there. Um, I did tell my husband um, before I married him, hey, I'm going to go into the specialty. And, you know, um, I may not always be at home all the weekends. There may be times when you have to, you know, take care of our kids if we have kids and stuff. And so um, it, it was it was tough. But now I'm about six years out of practice and I really... Uh, I did a fellowship in minimally invasive surgery right out of residency. And so I've um, even subspecialized a little bit more. And for the last couple of years, I've been really focusing on the gynecological aspect of things and the surgical aspect of things. And so my lifestyle has also gotten a little bit better at not running into the hospital at night all the time. Um, so, yeah, I've just made it made it work. Um, and and I'm glad I, I listened to my heart and uh, went with what I loved. Yeah, I love that. And it's so interesting to see, you know, when I work with clients in coaching, that there can be one circumstance and a lot of different thoughts about it. So you saw that, right? There was a circumstance of OBGYN as a specialty and many different responses and reactions and thoughts. And you chose, right, to do what you love, to view it through that lens and bring that forward. How do you navigate that where you can remind yourself, right, that you're choosing it and that it can, yes, be hard and 
be what you're passionate about? Yeah, I think as physicians, we are used to doing really hard things, you know, getting into medical school, doing residency, which is grueling, you know, OBGYN is especially very tough, a fellowship, all of that. Um, and so I remind myself that, yes, I can do really hard things and I've done the, the bulk of the hard training um, already and that's behind me. And so now I just choose to focus on, you know, why I went into the specialty and focus on all the positive outcomes that I'm giving my patients and all the ways I get to impact uh, their lives in such an amazing and positive way. So I remind myself of that all the time. And um, I'm so grateful for the opportunity as well. Right. Um, there's so many people who try to get into medical school who don't or don't match into their specialty or don't get a fellowship and so I'm so grateful for all of the opportunities that have um you know come across my path and so that makes me just uh want to keep going mm -hmm. I love that there's a quote from Renee Brown I might not get it exact where she talks about the difference or distinction between entitlement and privilege is gratitude and I hear that in there because like mm -hmm. you notice right this is a privileged space to be able to care for patients and to be in these you know, I think it's what 7% of people who apply get into medical school. And so honoring that with gratitude is so beautiful. Yes. I love that. Yes, thank you. I'm curious if you can share as many physicians are making transitions right now, right? Due to the current climate in and out of medicine or in and out of certain parts of their own specialty. And you made that shift from full scope to honing in more on the surgical space. Can you share how you navigated that and perhaps I imagine went through a bit of a grieving process as you leave, you know, that labor and delivery space as well, especially continuity patients and deliveries. How did you help yourself make that transition? Yeah, so that's uh, it, it, that's a very interesting way in which it happened, actually, right? Um, we, during COVID, you know, we were a group of five here out in the Bay Area. And um, right when COVID started, uh, there was a huge exodus from my practice, actually, of physicians leaving just the Bay Area. People left for all different parts of the country due to family or spouses, jobs, etc. So we went from a big group to finding ourselves with uh, three doctors taking OB call. So we did that for a while. And then we said, hey, this is not this is not healthy for us. This is not healthy for our patients. Um, and out of the three of them, you know, one actually left again to a, a different part of the country. So there was two. And um, we were both pregnant um, at the height of COVID taking OB oh, wow. call. And so as the head of my practice, I just sort of had to make this decision like, okay, we're not, this is not safe and this is not good for us. So we are temporarily putting a halt to OB until we can get back you know, the full complement of physicians. And um, it was really hard to tell patients that, um, but we just had to do it to keep ourselves like thriving alive and functioning during the pandemic and uh, providing care to the rest of the patients who needed us. And so um, that's sort of how it came about, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so I, it wasn't even a super conscious decision that, okay, this year I'm going to stop OB. And I do miss OB, actually. And I'm hoping to take some call shifts here and there just to keep up those skills. Um, mm -hmm. There's just such a joy and privilege, um, some terror as well of doing <laughs> OB. But there is, there is a, a huge uh, joy and privilege in that part of my specialty. So I hope to do a little bit of that. But I really... Um, focused more on the GYN. And when this whole practice shift happened, I thought, gosh, I didn't even ask for it. And it kind of fell in my lap. Um, mm -hmm. And this is great. Um, you know, it was just meant to be because eventually that is what I was 
hoping to transition towards anyway. Um, but to have been given that so early in my career was was awesome. And I realized, um, well, now I can really see all the surgical consults that come my way and really my skills of that I learned in fellowship and really put those into practice and um, help women um, get their surgeries done and live a life free of bleeding and pain. Mm-hmm. I love that. And sometimes, right, the universe is really nudging us, you know, <laughs> in very aggressive yes. ways. It sounds like, okay, right, we're going to keep taking these positions away. Are you still going to keep doing this? Are you listening to the message? And I had a similar experience in my practice. I had been debating, you know, making a shift. And then it was, it was COVID and a PPE preservation order and a closure. And then finally saying, oh, this is what I was going to be doing. And I needed that push sometimes to make that decision. Right. And yeah, it was, it was really hard in the beginning and I really fought it. And I said, Oh, oh, you went practice. How can we not do OB and um, Mm -hmm. this and that, but it was just the way it, it, you know, fell, fell out and I shook out and I thought, okay, well, let's just go with it. You know, Mm -hmm. let's not, let's not fight it. And you're getting to do something that you always wanted to do. So. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so tell me more about how you're now in this space. Like you said, you can expand and take these surgical consults. And we know fibroids can be so debilitating, the pain that's associated in the function. We look at that in the osteopathic lens of structure and function, how that can have such an impact on so many systems, right? The pelvis is a complex yes. and a busy space for lots of different structures. Yes. And from my perspective too, you know, I think about the sacrum and the foundation of so much of the musculoskeletal system that can be influenced. What drew you to notice that as an issue and to find a solution to help women? Yeah, so my... Fellowship training in Brooklyn um, was focused especially on fibroids, just a population that was around Brooklyn, um, super international, very diverse, and um, fibroids um, disproportionately affect African-American women. And so um, in Brooklyn, that was a lot of the population around me. And so we ended up inadvertently doing a lot of fibroid surgery. And so I um, did a, a lot of it and I became good at it and I really enjoyed it. And so as I came to Oakland, California, which was actually very similar to Brooklyn in terms of patient population and, you know, very diverse, um, I sort of attracted those patients. And um, uh, like I said, I just really enjoyed doing that surgery. I do these robotically mostly. And so I, um, you know, I've had great outcomes and it's just it's just a fun procedure. And so I uh, continue to hone my skills um, in that space and continue to draw patients and there is a huge need I think when I as as women you know when we get our periods um, already that's like okay four or five days out of our month and then here I am seeing patients bleeding you know 30 60 90 days running to the emergency room Um, you know they've got kids and families and jobs and um, you know how do they do it uh, with barely any blood in their bodies. Mm-hmm. So it was just sort of mind blowing to me. And I think what was more, um, what really stood out to me more was that a lot of women didn't really know their options. You know, they just felt like, okay, this is, I guess, this is what, you know, what's going to happen until I hit menopause. Uh, but no, there are actually a lot of options. And um, I feel like my calling is really to empower women to make those decisions about their bodies to help them live a life free of bleeding and pain and empower them to live uh, a life where they can actually enjoy a good quality of life. And so mm-hmm. that's sort of my mission. Absolutely. And so important to know, because it can seem 
minor or it's something that we don't talk about or like you said we just normalize it or internally we normalize it well this is just how it is for me and maybe everyone else is having this too or no one else is so I shouldn't bring it up how do you start to open that conversation are you finding different ways to reach out maybe beyond the one-on-one patient doctor clinical space yeah um right now I've um I started an Instagram um account. It's called the Fibroid Doc, as well as the YouTube channel, the Fibroid Doc, where every week I put out a little video on a different aspect of fibroids. And mm-hmm. um, so I'm able to reach a, a larger audience. I'm hoping to speak more about fibroids. Um, and when I you know, see patients with fibroids and I'm educating them and they, at the end of the visit, they say, oh, thank you so much. I had no idea. Um, I didn't even know this was an option for me. And then I say, okay, make sure you tell a friend or mm-hmm. a family member who has, you know, a similar issue. And so it, it's a lot of speaking. It's a lot of educating um, and just making, you know, women more aware. Yes. So important. Thank you for putting that out there. I'd like to touch mm-hmm. on too, you mentioned the disproportionate impact of fibroids on African-American women and I imagine access to care becomes an issue as well in these different locations where you have lived and served. Do you have reasoning behind that? Is there research being done to know why that is and how to shift that impact? Yeah, there is a lot of research being done on why it is um, that African-American women are disproportionately affected, but we don't have a crystal clear answer at this time. Um, there are genetic factors um, at one point, uh, they, they did attribute, um, you know, like the hair straighteners um, uh, to to fibroids. Um, not really sure that that really stood up to the test, um, but diet is another one. Um, so we don't really fully know. But the when patients ask me, the one thing I say they have in your control is your diet. And so mm-hmm. I really encourage people to eat a largely plant-based vegetarian diet with a lot of cruciferous vegetables like, you know, cauliflower and broccoli. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So important to see where you can look at that control and then beginning to examine too, where are the systemic factors at play that we can collectively begin to support as well? Right. Can you describe perhaps some of the more dramatic challenges for a patient you've had in the past from fibroids and the outcomes, what they have experienced after working with you? Yeah. So I, one of the most important cases that stands out to me is uh, at the end of my fellowship, I um, operated on a patient with a 23 centimeter fibroid who was also pregnant. Um, Mm. And she was 12 weeks pregnant and, you know, looked like she was about 40 weeks. And Mm. while we really try not to operate during pregnancy, especially on the uterus, um, this patient, you know, was in a predicament and she had no other choice. So we actually operated on her. Um, and I remember just feeling her uterus, which was pushed all the way up to her liver, um, because this fibroid had taken up her entire abdomen, but we successfully removed the fibroid. She did really well. She went on to have a healthy, normal baby. So that was really great. Um, and more recently sort of my bread and butter, uh, uh, sort of cases that I see now, um, are just women who are running to the ER getting blood transfusions. Um, you know, I just, I just had a patient three weeks ago that I operated on with a hemoglobin of three, which I have mm-hmm. never seen in my life before. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, after surgery two weeks later, her hemoglobin was 12 and she was wow. so grateful and so thankful. Um, and this was a patient actually who I removed like 13 fibroids from and, mm-hmm. um, the, and, and she was, uh, hadn't had 
had any babies yet. And so that is the other huge piece of the work I do, which is so many women with debilitating fibroids um, are still hoping to have children and haven't found the right partner or have been trying and trying and have not gotten pregnant. And so really restoring their uterus back to a normal um, architecture and normal anatomy has been very, very rewarding. And I've gotten to see some of these patients then get pregnant and even deliver some of them. So it's been full circle. Yeah, that is fantastic and incredible, right? To have that interoperative intrapartum surgery. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. And as you work with your colleagues, so I imagine some of your referrals might come from the ER if they're seeing return patients or recurrence transfusion requirements that they hopefully are directing them right to the root cause and bringing them to you. Are you finding that networking relationships amongst fellow physicians helpful? Yeah, I um, actively try to network with primary care doctors in the area, hematologists um, who are seeing these patients for blood, blood or iron transfusions. It does become a little tricky with insurance and mm-hmm. things like that, where not everybody is in, in network. Um, but um, yeah, I, I constantly trying to tell patients like if you have or, or tell physicians if you've got patients mm-hmm. first, please send them to me um mm-hmm. because that's also I think as a physician it's hard to know who has what interest and who's good at what um you know we're all so busy in our own spaces and lives and 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 work schedules um so yeah I actually enjoy networking so it's been fun, mm-hmm. fun for me yeah yes and you've gone this coast to coast you know maybe you can talk a little bit about living in Brooklyn and then in Berkeley and like you mentioned some commonalities between them and I imagine a lot of differences as well. Yeah um, you know I grew up in the east coast uh, when I immigrated from India at uh, age 12 I moved to Connecticut where my aunt was and so our family moved there and um, my mom's sister and I and then we uh, I went to college in Massachusetts and trained in New York so all east coast east coast and then i um met my husband who's from the west coast and in tech and so that's sort of how i ended up on the west coast and i've been here about six years it mm-hmm. did take me i would say a good five years to get <laughs> to get used to used to it very very different um but interestingly uh we chose to live in the east bay in oakland berkeley area which is as diverse um i would say as as brooklyn so that's been really fun um of course there's more days of sunshine out here which has been really nice um but you know both coasts I think have their have their pros and cons absolutely and as you have made that transition from coast to coast and you fellowship trained do you have a network so for those who aren't in the the east bay area finding those fibroid surgeons across the country is that a building network as well yeah, that's a good question. There's nothing formal at the moment. Um, and um, I wish that there would be something more uh, formal in place because it is hard for patients and other physicians too to, you know, uh, find doctors who have this um, subspecialty. Uh, it's really word of mouth at this point. So when I see a patient from, say, the Central Valley, um, I operate on them and then I send a letter to their primary care doctor saying, hey, like, you know, great caring for your patient. And by the way, if you have more patients who need fibroid surgery, I'm, I'm a resource. So it's a lot of that, like, grassroots, like, you know, um, word of mouth, like one-to-one type of communication at this point. Um, and of course, you can always Google um uh, you know, physicians, but we all know that that's not necessarily a great way of 
predicting quality and um, all of that. Yeah. So well, I can yeah. see as your YouTube channel, Instagram grows, then you'll become the facilitator, right? Of the national that network of fibroid surgeons. <laughs> and that would be awesome. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I got to speak at the Essence Festival in um, Atlanta, which was great. I mean, it was a national stage and, you know, really talking about fibroids and um, that actually gave me a lot of, um, a lot of visibility into, mm-hmm. into the rest of kind of the, the national arena. Yes, I love that. We've touched on so many great concepts. We looked at the structure and function and the surgical interventions that you provide, the impact of mind, body, spirit, and how you're caring for your patients. And also I heard in there the self-healing capacity, right? If we can remove some of this and return those patients, like you said, hemoglobin of three to hemoglobin of 12, right? That body wanted to get back to normal. I wonder as you're going through, what encourages you in some of those tough cases and those heavy call days to keep at it, to stay in that lifelong learner space? Yeah. Um, you know, every time I go to the operating room, I really consider it, consider it, you know, such a sacred space. I mean, I'm, I'm cutting into a patient with a knife, you know, Mm -hmm. it is, um, I, it it never fails. Um, I never fail to like really take a moment uh, to think about that prior to every case. Um, because it has been years of, education, years of training, mentorship that's brought me there. And uh, what an incredible privilege to let patients, um, you know, for patients to really put their lives in my hands, so to speak, and really trust me, um, you know, with, with these big surgeries. So just thinking about that and then, you know, reminding myself of these stories on the on the other end, the back end, where patients actually do get better and then go on to have kids or just have a better quality of life, um, never have to have an ER visit again. Um, and just thinking about that quick impact um, that I can make within a couple of months um, is very encouraging to me. So I constantly, yeah, constantly think about that. I love it. So powerful. And please share again. I know you mentioned the name of your Instagram account, but just make sure everyone knows where they can find you and hopefully share with their friends, right? The information you're providing yeah. around fibroids. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my website is going to be the fibroid.com. Um, and then you can find me on Instagram at the fibroid doc, as well as um, on YouTube, the fibroid doc. And so everywhere it's, it's the fibroid doc. And you can also email me the fibroid doc at gmail.com. Fantastic. And we'll put all that in the show notes as well. Well, as we wrap up, we've heard lots of different ways, but I'd love to hear your take on how you see yourself for the health of all things. Yeah. So at this point in my life, I really feel like my goal and my mission is to help women with fibroids live a life free of bleeding and pain and to empower women to realize that there are so many options that they have um, to restore their bodies and to have a good quality of life and that they don't have to suffer. And um, my goal is to do that as authentically um, as possible. I love that. Well, thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for taking the time to share your story with us here today. It's been fantastic having this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Beaky. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of This Osteopathic Life conversations for the health of all things. Please take a moment to like, rate, and review the podcast. And if you would like to be featured as a guest or know someone you'd like to nominate as a guest for an episode, 
please let me know at thisosteopathiclife at gmail.com. Visit the website at thisosteopathiclife.com or visit me on Instagram and Facebook at This Osteopathic Life. Thank you so much for listening.